Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance Economics. Productivity is the key to real GDP growth. Our view is that inflation is going to be moving higher, but it's going to be moving higher on a gradual basis. Finance. I don't think there's a reason to expect the dollar to keep going up. We don't realize how good times are now. Investment. I'm very pessimistic on stocks. I'm very pessimistic on bonds. If you're a longer-term investor, you just want to stay long. Bloomberg Surveillance with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. From New York City for our audience worldwide. Good morning, good morning. This is Bloomberg Surveillance alongside Tom Keen. I'm Jonathan Farrow. President Trump picking a loyalist to replace Cohn. Carlos signaling he supports a tough stance on China. The Senate backing a bill to relax post-crisis rules, giving smaller banks a break, offering Wall Street very little. And drowning in debt, crushed by competition, the Toys R Us turnaround collapses after turnaround efforts fail. In the markets, your Thursday morning price action as follows. Futures up 14 on the Dow, unchanged on the S&P 500. In the FX market, some muted price action, but some yen strength in there. With dollar yen down for a second straight day, we dropped south of 106 at 105.89, down four-tenths of 1%. In the bond market, is there some stormy weather brewing in Shortsville? Treasuries, yields lower by another basis points to almost 280 on a US 10-year. At the front end of the curve, we're unchanged at 2.25%. And to round things out for you in the commodity market Brent unchanged at 64.91 and WTI positive by just a mere two tenths of one percent at 61 dollars and around about 10 cents the main story worldwide is still very much China with the question one question on many people's minds how does the United States counter China in a period of just 24 hours the struggles were very much underlined in Beijing President Xi was consolidating power unveiling a sweeping diplomatic overhaul to help deliver a decade-long plan in Washington, the president fired his top diplomat by tweet, laying bare months of policy disputes. I'm really pleased to say that weighing in this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance is Stephen Roach, the Yale University professor, formerly chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and the firm's economist for much of his 30-year career at the company. He joins us now. Professor, good morning and Hi, thank Jonathan. you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how does the United States counter the Chinese approach in international trade? Well, there's several things we got to do. Number one, Jonathan, we ha- we have to restart the the, the formal engagement uh, on, on on economic matters. We used to have something called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue. It morphed into the Comprehensive Economic Dialogue, and now it's on hold, and we really don't talk. We don't need a bunch of you know annual uh, sort of event planning uh, exercises. We need a a permanent secretariat to, to really engage the Chinese on a regular basis, number one. Number two, we've got to focus on market access. And there we've had a negotiation stalled for nine years on a bilateral investment treaty, which would allow us and our multinationals to um, have greater access to rapidly growing consumer markets uh, in China. We are stymied on this. The Chinese uh, are also part of this. Um, they, they want access to our markets. Let's, uh, if we have a president who does deals, let's do a deal uh, to allow uh, companies on both sides to actively participate. And thirdly, there's a number of uh, sort of <coughs> um, uh, softer policy issues that need to be addressed. 
We talked about them on um, television a few minutes ago. The U.S. is completely off base in viewing the Chinese bilateral deficit in isolation from its multilateral current account and savings problems. We've got to get economic analysis back into the issue. And the Chinese have soft issues of their own to address in, in terms of their geostrategic intentions, yeah. uh, their uh, uh, trading practice issues, uh, and uh, cyber issues as well. Uh, China's reputation uh, amongst the um, uh, the intellectual thought leader base in the United States is probably at an all-time low right now, and China needs to counter that with more effective uh, and reasoned responses on their side. How do you expect the Chinese to counter the events of the last month, Professor? Because they have been remarkably quiet in the face of um, heightened criticism worldwide. Well, they've been they've been quiet because the the actions to date have not really been of enormous consequence. The big uh, shoe to fall would be Jonathan if uh, the, the president does impose much uh, uh, higher and broader tariffs as part of the so-called Section 301 negotiations that his trade representative has been uh, working on since last August in areas like intellectual property rights, technology transfer, and uh, innovation. And, you know, the the rumor, not so secret, coming out of um, Washington is that uh, big tariffs are coming uh, in, in response to that. And if the Chinese are hit with much bigger tariffs, Right. They will most assuredly retaliate, and we'll see how we like it when our third largest and most rapidly growing export market puts tariffs on U.S. Right. companies, including Boeing. Steve Roach, to me, the thing that's most charming is a complete misunderstanding of game theory. And I'm not talking about the sophistication of Avinash Dixit down at Princeton University or the wonderful program at Rice University. I'm just talking about basic response. Mr. Navarro and Mr. Ross seem to be unaware that China will respond. How will China respond? What is the game theory that Steve Roach observes or can predict from Beijing? China, we have a code, I mean, uh, Tom, we have a codependent economic relationship with uh, uh, China, which means that uh, they depend on our markets to sell their goods, but we also depend uh, on products from China to um, make ends meet for hard-pressed consumers. And by the way, we depend... Uh, uh, hugely every year uh, on Chinese buying of treasuries to um, fund our budget deficit, which is, of course, uh, going to get considerably larger in the, in the years ahead. So China's got a number of options that it can uh, uh, think about in response yeah, to but, U.S. pressure okay, they on the hard. trade front or on the capital but, flow front. I mean, I mean, you should see John Farrell going down Fifth Avenue on a Harley-Davidson. It's really <laughs> something. If they put a tariff on Harley-Davidson's What's the effect on that for both parties? Well, you won't you won't see John riding as Harley in uh, in in Beijing, or it'll just get a little bit more expensive. Yeah, well, uh, who knows? Um, I I think again, uh, the U.S. Uh, is looking for sources of growth. Yeah, and uh, our two biggest uh, trading partners are Mexico and Canada. Number three in terms of, and, and and number one in terms of actual uh, growth over the last 10 years is China. China's changing its economy, Tom. They're becoming more of a middle-class consumption economy, which is uh, uh, a huge potential market for us in terms of both goods and services, provided we do a deal on market access through the bilateral investment treaty that I just alluded to. So that should be the focus 
Uh, and, you know, the Chinese can choke off that option if we play tough with them. So you're right. There is no real uh, game-theoretic mindset uh, in Washington. They view it as a one-way street. You know, we can stop China irrespective of the consequences that may have on us. Professor, at the moment, though, that development in China is largely seen as a threat. Made in China 2025, this big decade-long plan is seen as a threat, not just by the United States of America, but by Europe as well, and perhaps Germany more specifically. You keep talking about the benefits of this relationship with China, and I look at the current administration and wonder whether they identify enough shared interests right now to really counter the areas of friction. Do they? Look, those are those are great questions. Industrial policy, whether it you know was sponsored by um, uh, the Japanese uh, in the '80s or, or now the Chinese um, right now, has has been viewed as a threat uh, for systems like ours that are based on the creative des- destruction of Joseph Schumpeter. The market knows a lot more, but. You know, we get engaged a lot in industrial policy. Just look at what the Trump administration did with respect to this uh, Qualcomm yeah. uh, uh, deal as well. And look at what we've done repeatedly uh, in intervening in what we think are our strategic interests uh, through CFIUS and other uh, uh, organizations that uh, control uh, the way in which um, uh, other companies operate in, in, in our space. So we're all guilty of uh, intervening uh, in, in markets. And, you know, the Chinese do have this strategic plan made in China 2025. But look, there's no guarantee it's it's actually going to uh, work out exactly as they say. They, they've got to do a lot of innovation. They're going to move up the value chain. They're going to be moving into new industries. They're going to put a lot of government support uh, into these industries like, uh, you know, biotech and uh, information technology and yeah. uh, environmental uh, remediation, but there's no guarantee it's going to work if they don't have the innovation uh, and the uh, the breakthroughs uh, to really bring these industries uh, to the next place. Stephen Roach, it's great to have you with us. The uh, Yale University professor, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, and the firm's economist for much of his 30-year career. It's an annual visit that we do with Douglas Cass of Seabreeze. We do this for the brackets. We do this for spring training in his Florida, Cass visiting all the stadia of the Grapefruit League, and we talked to him about the equity markets uh, as well. Doug, who do you have in your bracket, please? Let's get that out of the way. On the right side of the bracket, I'm all Philly. Villanova versus Pennsylvania. Penn mm-hmm. Quakers. Go Quakers. You've the got semis. the Penn Quakers. I'm, I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious. I think Villanova goes all the way. Okay. Very good. We're looking boiler up here. Purdue. John Farrow, Doug Cass, is trying to find Purdue on the map. Uh, I'm still waiting for someone to tell me why we say <clears throat> boiler up. Well, Doug Cass, we'll get into that in history. We'll do that at our <laughs> 10 o'clock, our autopsy, meet, our autopsy meeting uh, this morning on boiler up. Doug Cass, boiler up these markets, Dow 25,000. Everyone knows you've been more than cautious. Are you still short the market? Yes, I, I well, I've been long and short, but I see yes. better than a fifty percent probability that we've seen a market top already this year. Within that, is it about the economic growth fragilities that are percolating? Is it simply valuation, or is it Jerome Powell? Well, I think history rhymes, and we discussed last time when I went uh, long into the uh, liquidity dry up owing mm-hmm. to the unwind of short vol and risk parity trades in early February. 
And um, I compared it to the last liquidity event that I remember in October 1987 when portfolio insurance crashed the market. So if history rhymes, we uh, have a rally off that. We have a retest, a rally, and a retest. I think we're at the, we had the second rally already. I bought back my shorts, went long, sold into my target of around 27.50. We had a bit of an overshoot. And where I stand now is I've been consistently in the last week or so reshorting the indices. I made the observation to you and to your producer and my buddy Lee that, you know, we live in this interconnected world, world, this flat world, so all uh, geography, market geographies, should really correlate to each other. And I made the observation that the, S, that the DAX is now back to where it was in March 2017, which is, will surprise a lot of people. Yeah. At that time, the S&P was about 425 points lower, so you get some sense of overvaluations. I don't think this is a divergence we can ignore. But there are other warning signs. Uh, Jonathan mentioned the, the, the strong bid in the Treasury market. High-yield debt is starting to roll over. Um, we're beginning to see uh, the uh, domestic economy stumbling a bit, and the more optimistic economic assumptions uh, are not being confirmed by retail sales, durable goods, housing starts, automobile sales, which have peaked. And so there's a developing trend of disappointing economic data as well. It's also occurring in the EU, the last couple of data You see points. it very pronounced so, in Europe, Doug. Yeah. So I think the market may be the mirror image of the New York Yankees. In the latter case, the best is yet to come. In the former oh, case, the market, gosh. the worst is yet to come. Good morning, Bloomberg 1061 <laughs> FM Boston. On behalf of all, I apologize. Please, please. Seriously, Tom. Come on. But explain come to me, on. Doug, how the Orioles can pop off five or six in a row in the Grapefruit League. No one understands this world. John? Spring training. Look, my eye is on the market. My heart is on D.D. and Wade and Bird and Sanchez and Hick. And we have to all stand up for the judge. So we so we keep it on a market, Doug. John, just just for a couple us. of minutes. John, just for save a couple us. of minutes um, before everyone in Boston turns off the radio. Um, Doug, <laughs> if if we've come into the new year and everyone is completely over enthusiastic about global synchronized growth, Europe picking up, the United States picking up, talk to me about whether a we've seen peak growth from listening to you. You think we have, and two, whether we've seen the peak for the ten year yield this year already. I think we've seen peak expectations. Growth. Um, I think we are uh, market participants. Jonathan are far too focused on the jobs report um, of last Friday. I would emphasize that employment data is a notoriously rearview mirror or lagging economic indicator. Uh, yesterday morning, the Atlanta Fed said that the GDP model sees first quarter growth of only 1.9 percent, down from two. I would say that's fairly disappointing considering we have been in a respend and rebuilding period following the hurricanes, and we're now nearly three months past the uh, passage of meaningful corporate tax cuts. What do you say back to people, Doug, that say those tax cuts won't bite until the second quarter, the third quarter? I, I don't, I don't understand, understand why that would be the case. Well, for a lot of people, they won't see it in their paychecks until later on this is, quarter. Well, I speak to companies, Jonathan, yeah. and I don't see an expl- ex- uh, a meaningful change in their capex uh, uh, projections for fiscal and calendar well, 2018. This, but this is something, we're going to do this with David Kelly here in a minute, but let's do it right now with Douglas Cass. Doug, you and I have seen this a jillion times where you get a consensus 
always deserved zeitgeist view, in this case, better economic growth, and it may be cyclical and short, it may be structural and long. Good morning, President Trump. Good morning, Mr. Kudlow. But, but Doug, the, the fact is, the percolation in research is it may not be there. That has a profound ramification on Fed tone and market tone, doesn't it? I'm beginning to think, Tom, that we're going to see a, a two or less rate increases, which is far below consensus. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, this consensus, Jonathan, is what I call groups think. And um, particularly at a flinch, in a, at a, if you can identify inflection points, you can make a great deal of money. And then now we have this optimism about my good uh, buddy, pal, friend, Larry Kudlow, which I do, which we yeah, probably okay. should discuss. Well, Doug, let's, let's just because of time, we got to rip up the script here. You and I have known sure. Larry for years. Can Larry talk back to the president? Because the critics say he's just going to mouth the Trump mandate. Isn't his job to say, wait a minute, Mr. President? Right. I, my relationship with Larry runs deep. I've been on the Cudlow Report when it existed over 50 times, maybe 20 times on his radio show. He was at my son's wedding. That's how close we are. I think on numerous grounds, this is a very different administration than Larry is joining as compared to the one that he left when he was working with Reagan years ago. I don't think it changed Trump's mind, which is strong and long held. He comes with these quick policy decisions and seems to stick with them. So speaking truth to his power is almost an insurmountable objective for Larry with Trump, in my opinion. What's the objective? I, I um, his, well, I think his role is going to primarily be in marketing, sell, marketing selling the tax pack, package, and secondarily working with Ross and Navarro towards a sensible trade policy. Thirdly, he's going to obviously bridge Washington and Wall Street and the business communities, which he'll be good at. Uh, but I ask you the, the following questions. Um, look, Larry has met more than anyone I know, and this is why I respect him. He has overcome challenges in the past, but this mountain is really high. High. Everyone is saying, especially on your um, competing network, CNBC, where he worked, if that Larry will have the upper hand against Navarro and Ross. I would ask if Cohn, the former president of Goldman Sachs, did not have the upper hand over Ross and Navarro, right. why should we expect Larry, okay. a business media commentator, to have right. the upper hand? Okay, I got to go here for Boston. I got an email here from Boston 1061 FM. Where should Aaron Judge be in the Yankees lineup? Isn't he like the ultimate leadoff hitter? Would you please? He's going to back third. At third, okay. It'll be magnificent. I hope to be down there in a couple days. Maybe, Doug, I'll run into you uh, at uh, Steinbrenner Field. Douglas Cass, Seabreeze Partners, uh, with us this morning. Thank you for those comments. Well, a change in the uh, White House and in advisors to the president when it comes to economic policy and perhaps even a change in markets. Gina Martin-Adams is a Bloomberg intelligence expert when it comes to all things related to economics and uh, the markets. Gina, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Sure, um, for maybe me. just let's talk a little bit about contradictions or seemingly contradictions. On the one hand, you have an administration that is imposing tariffs on the imports of foreign manufactured steel and aluminum. Also, there's a conversation, more than a conversation, I bet, about tariffs or preventing automobiles from being shipped to the United States for U.S. consumers. Now you have uh, Mr. Larry Kudlow, who is going to be joining the administration 
and has in the past, I believe, been a, quote, free trader. Right. How do you square those two things at a time when the budget deficit in the United States is ballooning? Uh, it's going to be tricky. I, I mean, I think as with all things with this particular administration, it's really tough to get a consistent read on where things are headed. I think if I were to take a stab at how Kudlow will position this, it is probably going to be positioned as a president that is attempting to negotiate better trade relations, not necessarily restrict trade. That would be my guess as to okay. how the spin goes. Is, is that the way investors will take this? I think investors are taking it this week as uh, with a big question mark. Right. I mean, I th we started off this week in pretty solid territory, uh, despite the fact that the trade package was passed last week. We had a really strong rally on Friday. We failed to follow through on that rally on Monday, and it's been a, a tough week ever since. And I think a lot of the reason for that tough week, so to speak, is this uncertainty with respect to where this administration is headed. If, if rates, if 10-year treasuries go above 3.5%, what happens to the U.S. government's ability it to find? It keeps us employed. <laughs> well, I'm hopeful for that. But but how how really how does that uh, factor into the ability of the U.S. government to finance its debt? and pay for it. Yeah, it's going to be really tough. I think this is one of the really critical questions for this year is you've got a Fed that has to react to fiscal policy getting easier and easier, reinflating the economy, creating some degree of inflation pressure, creating better growth conditions. The natural reaction of monetary policymakers is going to be continue to tighten. If monetary policymakers continue to tighten amid that higher growth pace, Rates are going to go higher. What they need to happen to fund this deficit is for growth to really skyrocket. Because if you do have much stronger growth conditions and as rates are going higher, it's not as difficult yeah. to fuel, right? The deficit looks much better in a higher growth environment than it does in a slow growth environment. Gina Martin Adams with us at Bloomberg Equity and Bloomberg Intelligence. Can I throw you a curveball question? Of course, Tom. I'm on I my way expect to, nothing I'm less. on my way to spring training, so I'm okay. on curveball I'm right ready. now. Toys R Us blew up today. And there was a certitude about all that debt X number of years ago. Are you afeared in a general sense that we've become so complacent about debt buildup, low yield, everything's great, you know, make private equity great again? Mm. Are we setting her up for more Toys R Us's right now in the future? I think we have a temporary reprieve from more Toys R Us's for this year specifically because of all the cash that's coming back through repatriation, because of all the tax reform that has unlocked a degree of cash for companies, all of that's going to make EBITDA look a lot better this year than it has in the recent past. So some of your leverage ratios, particularly those that are uh, debt relative to earnings related measures, look a lot better this year. So companies' capacity to pay improves significantly mm -hmm. as their earnings are improving. I think Toys R Us is a one case in a segment of the U.S. equity the sector, market that is continuing yeah. to struggle, and that's retail. Yeah. But you're not really seeing this in the broad sectors. I do think, should rates skyrocket, should you get a, a really rapid increase in rates, it makes things look a lot more difficult in future years, but it does not necessarily impact the stock market or sectors I, I, at large in the short run. Can I put out on Twitter, you Pam, can do the chart like. for Sears Holdings? Oh God! S H L D. I, I'm going to let Gina just. I mean, talk about a comment talk about a I, I try chart. to avoid. Yeah, I'm not going there. It's a totally new retail world. 
Thank you. Yes. All right. How about a, a totally new tax world? I don't know whether you got a chance to listen to some of the president's remarks yesterday. Uh, he was speaking, I believe, in St. Louis. Okay. And um, uh, topic is taxes and the potential for a second tax cut. Really? No, I did think, not well, hear do, this. I mean, well, I mean, I, I said there was just a hint of it. Okay. And I'm wondering, you know, in the, in the context of we got the news today that uh, the Dutch government is going to uh, continue with their plan to abolish uh Dividend taxes. Okay. Uh, is this a race to the bottom when it comes to taxes? And do you think we could get another tax cut? Wow. I, this is out of uh, totally out of left See, field. I, I, I left thought the president was looking the, at walls in California yesterday. I wasn't aware of a so tax cut. He had so, his finger. He had his finger in the wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Netherlands. I thought so, it was. you know, perhaps. <laughs> I think it's a long way off. Gina, I just put up, we do this for Gina Martin Adams and no one else, folks. We go to the weighted average cost of capital. It's a wonderful function on the Bloomberg. Sears Holdings, 88% debt with a coupon of 4.9%, which is popping conservatively 200 beeps off the 10-year yield. I, I mean, I, I, we'll have to, we have to have Gina Martin-Adams back on just to go over these kind of things. When you weight the average cost of equity and debt within the present nirvana, that we're in. See, I thought he was going to ask you to wait the cost of tickets to spring training baseball. <laughs> Gee, <it's laughs> Thank God. Me. I'll take weighted average cost of capital over that any day. <laughs> we, had to, we had to sell the middle daughter just to be able to swing this. <laughs> Gina Martin Adams with this Bloomberg Intelligence working on equities. And of course, she does this with futures up six, Dow futures up 99. Pim Fox and Tom King, we need to get the markets open. This is Bloomberg. Well, I guess you can uh, do an RIP for Toys R Us. And uh, here to explain how it all happened is Stephanie Wissing, Jeffrey's Research Analyst and Managing Director. And yes, we're talking about the toy retail business. Uh, Stephanie, thanks very much for being uh, with us. Uh, you say that the, the Toys R Us liquidation perhaps is going to send ripples through the industry. In what way? Yeah, I think a couple of ways. And good morning. I think two things. One, clearly there are a number of toy vendors that support Toys R Us that will feel the impact of the loss of a retailer. And anytime there's a loss of the retailer, that means that there's concentration of share with other retailers. And we think the winners are most likely to be Amazon and Walmart. Um, and both of those companies, we know, fight on price. And so as a vendor selling toys into the toy industry with two big, powerful retailers now as your, your lead agents for consumer buying, means that there's you know, most likely going to be some margin pressure. I think secondarily, as we think about Toys R Us's role in the toy industry, it was definitely a destination where consumers discovered new brands and new products within the toy space. So I do think for those small and mid-sized companies, they're not going to necessarily have a venue to really build and, and uh, develop their brands. So you know, we, we do look for new venues to potentially unfold and, and emerge, uh, where some of the mm. inventors and some of the uh, more innovative toy companies that are on the small and medium size can find homes for their product. Stephanie, is this a, a, a casebook example where the actual business of toy stores is perfectly okay in the sense that you want to go and buy a toy, you want to go and see it, you want children to go and see it before they actually cost you the money to do so, but that the uh, sort of, not management, but the financial engineering behind Toys R Us is what doomed the company. Yeah, I think that's a fair observation. I think clearly the financial engineering and the financial structure of Toys R Us put pressure 
on its ability to invest to stay current with changes in the modern retail marketplace. I think second, though, we have seen very distinct changes in consumer behavior. One of the most unique and I think probably most prolific changes in the consumer marketplace is the changing leadership of demographics. We've moved now into a millennial-led consumer marketplace. And that millennial is a digitally native, digitally savvy, and is clearly shopping more yeah. online than prior generations. So I think that has also been unfolding in the backdrop, layering on top of this overall financial right. structure that was prohibitive. Steph was, was sitting with us with Jeffries uh, right now on, on not only consumer retail and toy industries. Your reports are wonderfully detailed about store closings, and liquidations. What's the level of sweat right now? It's March. I guess they're really beginning to get ready for the fall, the winter, the Christmas season. I don't know what the schedule is. There's trade shows to go to. Forget about it all. What's the sweat level of right-sizing income statements right now? Well, I think certainly as an academic, we need to be very thoughtful about what we think the potential residual outcome is, and not just the impact of Toys R Us, but how the consumer behavior shifts play into our considerations around profit structures. I think importantly, though, because Toys R Us is announcing its intent to liquidate across its U.S., U.K., and portions of Europe and Australia fleet, this may take many, many months. One thing that consumers are incredibly savvy about is pantry-loading product when they find a great deal. So we don't necessarily know what the residual outcome is going to be in the holiday, which is where 75% of toy sales occur typically in the year. But if grandma's out shopping in August and she finds some Christmas presents that she can buy at 75 or 80% off, she might stock up on presents. And that may, yeah. might mean that the holiday season looks different than it has in the past. As we start well, to reconcile in 2019, I don't know that we'll see as much of an impact, but certainly this is going to play out over the course of the next 12 months or so before we fully right. appreciate what the loss of Toys R Us means to the industry. Do we buy toys off Amazon? Absolutely. Amazon is the fastest growing and one of the largest retailers of toys. I, I find Pim, I, I, you know, and I mean, I don't need to bore Steph for this, like Omnichannel. I Omnichannel sounds like an NBA program at you know name the school. Well, I hope Omnichannel has a lot of money because you're going to need it. Yeah, I want to ask yeah. you, Stephanie, just a little bit here. You know, uh, if we just go back to uh, to December. Um, there was, of course, a court hearing about this bankruptcy filing. And uh, the bankruptcy judge, Keith Phillips, he overruled objections by the U.S. trustee's office. They're the public watchdog, right, in, in these bankruptcy cases. And uh, the judge ruled that the retailer could pay its 17 top executives $14 million in incentive bonuses. Why would they do that? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think in the age of transparency, the consumers take issue with that when they see that occurring. And frankly, in some cases, the employees do too. I mean, Toys R Us was a very, very large retailer and employed a significant tens of thousands of people in the United States. And I think at, at holiday time worldwide was extending up into the $100,000, or excuse me, 100,000 person type range. So clearly that is a statement um, about, you know, protecting the interests of the executive group. <clears throat> but I, I think, in, again, in the age of transparency, yeah. that doesn't necessarily sit well with consumers right. and, and vendors and employees. Well, I was going to say, uh, and, and add into those investors, because Toys R Us used adjusted earnings as mm -hmm. the benchmark 
for whether the executives have actually made their bonuses, right? Correct. And that's, that's not an uncommon approach, but it certainly doesn't sit well. Yeah. So I, I think it's um, not atypical. Many times yeah. pro forma or adjusted. The head of the results. company, the head yeah. of the company, Mr. Brandon, Dave Brandon, uh, he, um, uh, I believe his cash compensation was six and a half million and uh, he receives other long-term incentives and bonuses. His ad brings his total annual yeah. comp to $12.5 million. Steph, in the time we got left with you, I, I mean, I know they're based out of Wayne, New Jersey. Al from New Jersey, not from Wayne, New Jersey, I believe, emailed in and said, isn't this all about real estate? Did Toys R Us hold on so long because they had prime real estate that was a bargaining chip? Yeah, there is some truth to that. If you look at the consortium, this goes back to the moment when Toys R Us went private and when it was a levered buyout was used to take it private. Yeah. One of the three parties was a real estate operator. So there well, was a real estate party at the table well, give us as an, an example. owner of Toys like, R Us. They go under, they've got some primo... I'll let you name the property, some primo property. What happens to that lease? What happens to that property? Yeah, I think that was the reason that the real estate party was involved in the transaction originally was to protect the real estate and protect the leasing structure. Those properties, in many cases, could be filled by a a different retailer. If they are in prime locations, they are going to be in demand. I think what we're we're observing broadly in the national retail marketplace is that the number of neighborhood, dense neighborhood nodes where you have these big power centers is being reduced. People are spending less time in traditional bricks and mortar. And so is that your prediction in fewer destinations? Is that your prediction for the future? I mean, Pim and I are seeing a slow auto torture here. I mean, I I don't need you to comment on Sears and that we don't have time, but basically Amazon's got the high ground and this, is this a look for the rest of 2018? Well, I think it, it raises some very legitimate questions about experiential retail. I think retail that is succeeding in the marketplace today has a high com- emotional connection to the consumer, is in a category where there's a high trial and discovery area, um, and it offers the consumer something more than what you can experience in a mobile device or online. And I think yeah. that ultimately is going to be how the consumer prioritizes their time. If they're given an opportunity to go spend time at a restaurant with friends and enjoy an evening out or go into a transactional venue and right. stop for product, they're most likely okay. going to bias towards the experience. And so right. I think the more and more retailers think creatively about experiences that draw customers right. together, build community, connect, and ultimately yeah. community uh, the uh, community co-creates the brand experience, right. that, those are going to succeed. I think for uh, the unfortunate thing for Toys R Us is the seasonality of the industry. Right. And the fact that the overall okay. toy industry is going through these dramatic okay. changes in how kids play right. today versus what right. they did 20 years ago. I, I'm underwater. I got to get to 331. My elf has been blown up. What's your single best buy to save me for the quarter? Oh, boy. To save you for this quarter? Yeah, quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not in the toy space. We do. We cover the beauty space as well. And we would yeah. say Estee Lauder is still one of our favorite ideas. Love it. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Greatly appreciate it. Stephanie Wisnick with us with Jeffries. That's great. You know, folks, we make, Pim and I make a lot of fun with it. But literally, if I was to do an equity show, I'd call it Single Best Buy. Because you go to a two-hour meeting with somebody on the sell side, and it's blah, 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 blah. All the rest of what's the single best buy That's, right now? Yeah. Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder. All right. You know how many employees uh, Toys R Us has? I heard 33,000. 30,000. Yeah. 30, Over 30,000 yeah. people. 740 stores. Yeah. You know who did the private buyout? KKR. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. 
6.6 billion. They got 5 billion in debt. We say good morning to those from KKR listening. We really appreciate your attendance. The Dow up 39. Stay with us through the day. This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 